Today we're talking about... Oh, it. <laughs> Come on, Dorowski, pull it together. Shoot. Pull up the wrong thing. I'm on your raw script and not my, <laughs> my Wuthering Heights one. Because you told me to go look. Ugh. everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast i'm joseph drowski here with todd mack and each week we look at a great character and a great story today we're talking about Catherine and heathcliff from the 1847 novel wuthering heights written by ellis bell no wait what's this it was really written by emily bronte but that's that's a girl's name everybody knows girls can't write books unbelievable yes so <laughs> bit of trivia this was originally published under the name ellis bell <laughs> but it was in fact written by emily bronte this is an amazing. I knew nothing about the production of this book until I um, sat down to read it, and I think it's fascinating. Yeah, all three Bronte sisters published under pen names that were male, and uh, the quote I saw about it was, they feared that there would be prejudice against authoresses. Authoresses. Yes. And you know what, Todd? What? They were right. <laughs> <laughs> there would, in fact, have been prejudice against female writers. Yeah. Uh, but they all use their initials. So, let's see. It's Charlotte, published under the name Kerr, Kerr Bell, C-U-R-R-E-R, Kerr. So, she published under Kerr Bell, Charlotte Bronte. Uh, Emily, published under Ellis Bell. So, and then uh, Anne, published under the name Acton or Acton Bell, A C T O N. I don't know how that's supposed to be pronounced. I've never heard that name in my life. But, <laughs> were uh, there were there nom de plumes also supposed to be siblings? They published together. Yes, like they published a poetry, uh, a volume of poetry that had all three of them under those pen names. So yeah, uh, I I just I think it's an amazing an amazing piece of literature because I mean it's the only it's the only novel she ever wrote and it's pretty great. <laughs> And there's a, uh, just talking about the fact that the Brontes published under pen names, there is a very humorous YouTube video that we'll put into our show notes in which the uh, Bronte sisters are presented as action figures who can morph up into the Brontesaurus to oh, break shoot. down gender barriers in the publishing world. <laughs> and they shoot lasers out of their eyes at all these little male action figures who are the publishers that won't let them publish. The Brontesaurus. <laughs> The Brontosaurus. So yeah, they, they produced these little action figures that could morph together and transform into a giant dinosaur that they called the Brontosaurus. Which, of course, is not a real dinosaur and anymore. It, they said it had a feminist uh, barrier-breaking vision, I think it was. <laughs> About the superpower of this Brontosaurus. Wow. So look for that in the show notes. <laughs> so, yeah, it just... It, it's um, So the way that I understand the story, and please correct me if I'm wrong is that these sisters were living in a house out in the country. They had little sort of interaction with the outside world, uh, especially Emily, who was sort of uh, very introverted and just didn't have a lot of opportunity to get out. And they created these worlds, kind of fictional uh, fantasy worlds together. And then they decide, like, we should, you know, we should write poetry and, and things. And she sits down and writes this novel and it sort of turns the literary world upside down at the time. I mean, was a, b- b- people were shocked at this novel. Yes, there's a lot of strong, strong response to it. And then, and then she dies a year later at 30 years old, uh, about thereabouts. Yeah. And then, 
And then Charlotte comes out a little bit later and says, actually, these three books were written by me and my two sisters. And then a bunch of people don't believe them. Or it's just just kind of an amazing... I mean, it's kind of like um, Mary Shelley published Frankenstein not too long before this as a, you know, a romantic Gothic novel. And it was originally published, I think anonymously. And then as people were trying to figure out who wrote this book that everyone was loving and were saying was revolutionizing this, this genre, they all assumed it was her husband as they tried to work out where yeah. the script had been mailed in from and stuff. So yeah, there was some prejudice going on. I mean, we haven't exactly abandoned this. Essie no. Hinton published the outsiders under a pen under her initials because uh, I think her publisher that I'm remembering this from a while back, but I think her publisher told her that no one would believe a woman had wrote a story about all these tough young men. <laughs> so, so she had to publish under her initials. And I think that was also some of the logic of JK Rowling using her initials really? was that she's writing a story about a young male protagonist. And so the publisher was obviously right on. No one would want to read a story written by her. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable! No, I just—it's—it's just, it's, a—it's an incredible story, and uh, it breaks my heart when writers this good die young, because I think there's just so much left to be written. <laughs> yeah, and uh, even there's some lost elements, like you said. They—it seems from what I my understanding is, uh, she and her sisters were often told to just kind of play quietly <laughs> in a room yeah. and were locked up uh, with one brother. And uh, they, they apparently created a couple fantasy worlds and they had from some of the references that are made, they had notebooks full about these two fantasy worlds that they had built, but we don't really have those notebooks of the fantasy worlds, but apparently they were building whole characters and storylines yeah. within these fantasy universes when they were children. Someday, someday when I'm on the other side, I'm going to look up Emily Bronte and say, that was a heck of a novel. <laughs> <laughs> Can I read your other stuff yeah. that you wrote? <laughs> I mean, not like sh- she needs my approval, but uh, but it's 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 amazing. It's unlike anything I've ever read. So, how did you come to it? Uh, well, um, I do this podcast that's called The Protagonist, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about a great character and a great story every week. And uh, we have a Patreon. Uh, campaign going on where people can give us money and then if they give us money then they get to pick a story for us to uh to pick and uh one of our patreons who also happens to be your mother uh yes. requested <laughs> uh one of our uh, a patron she requested uh wuthering heights and i'd heard of wuthering heights i saw today the poster the movie poster for wuthering heights the film with uh Laurence olivier and i thought oh i think I have seen that movie poster before. I have never seen the film. I knew absolutely nothing about this book until I started reading it uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I started reading it on the Kindle, and the Kindle version actually has a really good introduction, which I was grateful to have. Um, And then I got stalled because of life. Uh, And then you told me about the podcast version um, through uh, LibriVox. And so I listened to it, and the version that I listened to was fantastic. Yeah, I I had also blended reading and then listening to the podcast while I was doing things like dishes. Yeah, <laughs> I listened. Make sure I finished the uh, the novel in time for this discussion. And I was also really impressed with the LibriVox version of of this. So LibriVox, they do things that are in public domain and i think it's all volunteers that do the yeah, recordings but this one was a pretty high quality so did you get the one that had all the different voices 
No, mine didn't have different oh. voices. Mine had a single single narrator, but she did a really good job with all the different voices. My version, I don't, I don't know if I could have. I mean, obviously, I could have made it through. I've read a lot of books in my day, so I'm sure that I would have finished this book. But it was so delightful. They had fantastic uh, people doing all of the voices, and there was a different person for every single voice. Oh, well, and, here's, well, okay. We had two different LibriVox recordings of. Yeah, it was really good this. and helped me to follow the story. Um, and. I, I, it was very, I, I really, really liked it. So, I mean, some people may think that that's kind of, I don't know. I don't even know what the word is. <laughs> like, it's not, it, it's, it's not right to, to do that. Like, there should only be one narrator, but I actually really, really liked it. They were all very good. I, I want to say something about our Patreon. Now that we have gotten to Weathering Heights, we are caught up on paid for topics. <laughs> so if anyone wanted their opportunity to get it talked about real soon, they have a, a particular choice. Now is the time to get in there. Cause you will be next up for, for getting your topic picked. And we put those high priority. It's a great yeah, point. You, we would even break our, uh, our system of going from television to comic book to film the novel for a patreon supporter <laughs> well we we might need a month to <laughs> get true. through a novel if it's a novel well, yeah. if it's but... if it's wuthering heights <laughs> then we need a month yeah but yeah for for a movie you know you could be the next recording yep. if you donate five dollars a month and we would really appreciate it yep all right uh i came to wuthering heights because my mom really enjoys the brontes and so the characters and just references to many of the Bronte works were kind of part of me growing up. And by, I, by references, you mean dad just randomly, occasionally going, Heathcliff! <laughs> and, my, and, and our mother just staring at him. Don't make fun of it. <laughs> something like that. And I, this may say something about me and my family, but I think one of my acts of teenage rebellion was that I would call the Brontes Poe Light. Oh my <laughs> <gosh>. <laughs> and, <laughs> And proclaim my my preference for my gothic literature from Edgar Allan Poe. Oh my goodness! Uh, <laughs> well, you just you just prefer your gothic literature to be American romanticism. Yeah. The, so yeah, that was that was one of my forms of teenage rebellion. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I will say one more thing about my uh, coming to this work. I listened to chapters ten through thirty two in one day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was a lot. A lot of yard work. <laughs> <laughs> you're never going to look at that yard the same way nope. <laughs> you know some memories coming back no the but uh, i'll tell you the, the story felt very uh cohesive okay <laughs> wasn't hard to follow all right well the quick version of this for any listeners who are unfamiliar with Wuthering heights is that there are two individuals named heathcliff and Catherine, and they share an obsession with one another that permeates their lives and has a few consequences. So if that sounds interesting, <laughs> you can go ahead and uh, stop now and read this or listen to the LibriVox podcast, which is free. So you can just go to an iTunes store and, and if you search Weathering Heights and Libra, it's Libra or Libra, it's L-I-B-R-I. Yeah, LibriVox. Depends uh, on which volunteer is reading yes. off their, uh, <laughs> yeah, and their my, explanation. Mine was, um, yeah, I mean, you'll see a few different versions of Wuthering Heights and I highly recommend the one that I listened to. It was really good. All right. So if that sounds interesting, go ahead and pause this and go listen to that. Otherwise, we're now going to have a full spoilery breakdown of the plot from Todd. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to do my best. This is tricky. So here we go. Buckle up. 
The story is set in England. It begins in 1801 when Mr. Lockwood, who is the first person narrator at the beginning of the story, uh, a wealthy man from the South, rents a house called Thrushcross Grange in Yorkshire, which is in the north of England. He decides to visit his landlord, Mr. Heathcliff, who lives in a neighboring house called Wuthering Heights. So first thing that I learned about this story, Wuthering Heights is the name of a house. Uh, He finds in the Heights an odd assortment of people. The owner, Heathcliff, looks like a gentleman, but his manner is rough and rude. The mistress of the house is a sad and sassy young woman, just in her teens. There is also a young man who dresses like a servant but seems to be part of the strange family. Uh, Lockwood unfortunately gets snowed in and against everyone's will, uh, has to spend the night in the Heights with all of these angry people. Uh, the housekeeper shows him to a bedroom that's full of journals and graffiti that's like written on this It's very creepy. Uh, that belonged to some former inhabitant called Catherine. After falling asleep, Lockwood has a horrible nightmare in which he sees Catherine's spirit trying to enter the room. Uh, when he wakes up screaming, he tells Heathcliff about the dream. Heathcliff believes that the dream is real and spends the rest of the night keeping watch at the window. In the morning, Lockwood returns to the Grange, uh, the previous house where he'd been, where he asks his housekeeper, Nellie Dean, about the people at Wuthering Heights, and she tells the story. I have to say, she is quite the storyteller I in one sitting to love, run through. I love Nellie Dean. <laughs> Uh, so this opens this new long section. So we were maybe uh, three or four chapters into this, and now Emily becomes, uh, or Nellie, uh, becomes the, the, I wrote Emily, it's Nellie. Nellie becomes the main narrator for uh, all, the next long portion. So here we go. She begins her tale 30 years before. At that time, a man named Mr. Earnshaw lived at Wuthering Heights with his son Hindley and his daughter Catherine. During his travels, Earnshaw comes across a dark-skinned gypsy boy who he adopts and calls Heathcliff. He brings Heathcliff home, and Heathcliff and Catherine become friends, uh, but Hindley, who is Catherine's brother, and Heathcliff hate each other. Hindley goes off to college. The father dies. Hindley moves back in with his new wife, Frances. He forces Heathcliff to live like a servant. Uh, One day, Heathcliff and Catherine walk down to the Grange, so the other house, where they see uh, this family who's living there. They're called the Lintons. One of the Lintons' dogs injures Catherine. She must spend the time, uh, some time with them while she recovers. When she returns, she's sort of more refined because she's been living with these more refined people. Um, and one of the boys that lives at the Lintons' home is named Edgar Linton. Um, and he and Heathcliff fight, and Edgar humiliates Heathcliff by locking him in the attic. Uh, soon, so humiliating. Soon, Francis, uh, who is Hindley's wife. Okay, so keep this straight for those of you keeping score at home. Francis is Hindley's wife. Catherine's sister-in-law has a baby, and they call him Hareton. Uh, then she dies. Francis. Uh, so Hindley is now a single father, and he becomes a drunk. And after a couple more years, Catherine and Edgar Linton, the boy who had humiliated Heathcliff. Uh, who lived at the house with the dogs who bit Catherine, they become friends. And then they <laughs> declare themselves lovers. Uh, and then Edgar proposes to Kathleen, Catherine, and she tells Nellie, the servant, who's now also narrating the story to us, that she can't decide between the man she likes, Edgar, and the man she really loves, Heathcliff. Big reveal. She can't marry Heathcliff, however, because he's uneducated, and he's from uh, low, uh, he's low class. And so... Heathcliff walks in, in the, on this conversation, and she only hears the part where she says, I can't marry Heathcliff. He, she, he misses the part where she says, I'm in love with Heathcliff. I'm absolutely obsessed with Heathcliff. He misses that part. So he runs away and uh, disappears without a trace. So with Heathcliff out of the picture, Catherine and Edgar marry, uh, and they live at Thrushcross Grange, the other house. Uh, six months later, Heathcliff comes back, and he looks like a gentleman, and he's very suave, and uh, Edgar hates him, and he hates Edgar, 
and uh, Heathcliff ends up wooing and eventually marrying Edgar's sister, Isabella, even though he and Heathcliff and Catherine still love each other, but not before he spends a bunch of time gambling with Catherine's older brother, Hindley, at the Heights and teaching Hareton, Hindley's son, all kinds of bad manners and swear words. We good so far? Yeah, yeah. 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 This is, I, I, you're doing an excellent job because I was so glad when you said I've got the long summary on this one. Okay, well, <laughs> there's a few twists. And turns. I'm just getting so, warmed so up. So I've never consumed Wuthering Heights in any form before. Well, the, after this, you I may you may not board. have to. Okay, Heathcliff and Isabella elope, but after they marry, Heath. But, but Heathcliff does not love Isabella. No, he hates right. her. He's only married her so that he can get back at Edgar. It's all part of this plan to take over. Wuthering Heights and the Grange and ruin Edgar's life, which he succeeds in doing. Because he was locked in the attic for one night. This is what you would he, call a long con that he's playing. Heathcliff. <laughs> this Heathcliff, is a long, this long-term plan. This is a lot of bitter. Heathcliff yeah. has been treated poorly by essentially everyone in this novel, except for Nellie and Catherine. Uh, so after they marry, Heathcliff reveals his true self. He becomes abusive to Isabella as a way of getting revenge on Catherine's, hus- Catherine's husband, Edgar Linton. When Heathcliff eloped with Isabella, Catherine grew ill. When Heathcliff and Isabella return to live at the Heights, the Wuthering Heights, uh, Heathcliff hears that she's ill. He goes to see her in secret with Nellie's help. She's sort of a go-between. Uh, she, Nellie, remember, is the servant who's telling us the story. Uh, and Catherine, it turns out, is pregnant. And after she sees Heathcliff, she dies. But not before she has a baby who Edgar decides, in order to keep everybody confused that's reading this book, uh, Edgar <laughs> decides to name her Kathy. So Edgar, Catherine's husband, has now had a baby uh, with Catherine. Well, well, Catherine, Catherine had, the baby. had a baby. And he is now the father of this baby. There's some weird stuff in the story, but nothing that weird. <laughs> and uh, her name is Kathy. Isabella now decides to leave Heathcliff because he's a monster. Uh, so she leaves Heathcliff. She goes to the south of England where she has a baby, Heathcliff's baby, uh, and he's a son. And she calls him Linton, which happens to be her maiden name, Edgar's last name. And now everything is confusing. Hindley, <laughs> who is Catherine's brother, the older brother that used to drink and gamble with Heathcliff, he dies, and now Heathcliff takes over Wuthering Heights. So 12 years go by. Edgar learns, Edgar, uh, Kathy's father, Catherine's husband, Heathcliff's arch nemesis, learns that his sister Isabella, <laughs> Heathcliff's wife, is dying. So he goes to retrieve her son, and when she dies, he, t- he gets this son, Linton, who shares Edgar's last name, is his now Linton's first name, and they return with him. So Linton returns with Edgar Linton. Linton Heathcliff returns with Edgar Linton. They returned uh, back to uh, the Grange uh, after Isabel, uh, Isabella dies. Question. Yes. There was another child before. What happened Ooh, to that we're child? Getting there. We're getting Kathy? There. No, 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 Harriton. Oh, that's the one. Okay. okay. I couldn't remember Just his name. Wait for I'm it. shocked that you could not remember his name. This is also straightforward. <laughs> Pay attention. Well, these aren't standard names I'm used <laughs> okay. to either. So Heathcliff insists that his son Linton live with him at the Heights, even though Heathcliff is a monster and everybody knows it. But Linton, he's also kind of a monster. He's a terrible kid. He always complains and uh, orders everybody around, and uh, nobody likes Linton. Uh, he's very sickly. and I mean, I have nothing against sickly people, but... Uh, but monstrous people, I do. Uh, Linton goes uh, so Linton goes to live with Heathcliff at uh, Wuthering Heights. Kathy, Catherine's daughter, Kathy, uh, who is now a high spirited girl as her mother had been, has no idea that she has not one but two cousins living not far away at Wuthering Heights. 
Uh, so one day she goes for a long ride and she ends up at Wuthering Heights and she meets her cousins, but she's forbidden from ever visiting them again. Three years later, while out on a ride, Nellie, who is Kathy's uh, servant and sort of best friend, uh, Nellie and Kathy meet Heathcliff out on their ride. Heathcliff this is the same Nellie. This is the, the same Nellie that's so, narrating the story to so us. So Nellie, the narrator, also Kathy's friend, also also Catherine's. Sorry, friend meaning servant. Yes, <laughs> and also Catherine's servant. Okay, and one of the only good people in the snow. And yes. So Heathcliff wants Linton and Kathy to get married. So Linton, Heathcliff's son with Isabella, and Kathy, Catherine's daughter with Edgar Linton. He wants them to get married so that Linton will become the heir to the Grange. Uh, Linton and Kathy actually do begin a secret friendship through letters, even though they've only met a couple of times, and they fell deep, they fall deeply in love through their letters. Nellie thinks this is ridiculous. So does, uh, so does uh, Kathy's father. Uh, a year later, Kathy's father, Edgar, becomes very ill. Heathcliff captures Kathy and Nellie and forces them to stay at the Heights uh, for five days. I wish, I wish you could have seen our producer Andrew's face when you said captures. <laughs> He's like, wait, what? He does. He captures yeah, them. They are basically kidnapped for five Wasn't days. Wasn't expecting that. They are kidnapped for five days. And all this time, Kathy thinks that her father is dying. She doesn't even know if he's alive. And, and Heathcliff is telling her, well, you can leave if you marry Linton. So she's fine. I'll marry Linton. So she actually marries Linton during this time, even though she doesn't really love him at this point. She doesn't love anybody at Wuthering Heights because they're all horrible, conniving, monstrous people uh, who have not helped her at all. Uh, she finally escapes. She gets home just in time to see her father die. So now this leaves uh, Linton in charge, essentially, because, I mean, this leaves Heathcliff in charge, because Linton is a total milk toast. Uh, it leaves Heathcliff in charge of both the Grange and the Heights. Uh, Edgar is dead, uh, and he has got everything that he wanted. He forces Kathy now to live at the Heights. Linton dies soon after. Uh, and that's the situation that Lockwood found at the beginning of the book. So remember, okay. at the very beginning of the book, Lockwood goes to visit his, his landlord at Wuthering Heights. there's Heist. this weird grouping there's there. There's this weird yeah, grouping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Heathcliff is Heathcliff. Uh, Kathy is the teenage mistress of the house, and she doesn't really like anyone there since they all held her captive for five days for, while her father was dying. And forced her into marriage with the guy that she kind of was liking, but then not. Okay. And the boy who seems like family but acts like a lowly servant, that's Harriton. And the reason why he acts like a lowly servant is because Heathcliff treated him so poorly for so long well and also everyone everyone and everyone now <laughs> has how, made fun of him and made him feel lowly so how old is harriton big h as i'm thinking of him in he's my young head. i mean okay, he's, but uh, he's like, youngish he's he's got to be like adolescent like 18 he's in his adolescent yes, or something yeah. If, yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 if kathy his younger cousin is a teenage yes mm-hmm. you're absolutely mm-hmm. right mistress of the house you have followed right. this shockingly okay. well so <laughs> So 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 Linton milk toast. What about Harriton? What what's so he never received any education and, yeah, he and never, everyone makes fun of him. So and, he's just treated bad. He's yeah. treated poorly. And Heathcliff taught him to swear and gamble. There's one time where Harriton tries to learn how to read, and Kathy makes fun of him, and she, it's sort of like good-hearted. Kathy's actually so she's not even nice either. Well, Kathy no, is she, sort well, of. I kind of yeah, like she, Kathy at the end of this book, but she kind of makes fun of him and doesn't. It's not. She makes fun of him. And he coming from an off evil and place, like, but she doesn't never realize, learn how to read again. She doesn't realize that this is hurting him. I mean, these yeah. people have not been educated in morality. I feel, yeah, the, I feel the like social Kathy, graces are lacking. I feel like Kathy at the end, towards the end of this novel, I feel like Kathy is um, good, if but certainly naive. I think fair. 
Fair, fair okay. assessment. Okay. All right, let's get to the end of the novel. So, so there's an end, right? So Lockwood... We've up to the framing device. By this point, Lockwood has had enough of the Moors. Uh, <laughs> you may... Let's just say, I don't know why anyone settles here. It seems as though everyone who lives there <laughs> dies of illness from living in that environment. And he leaves the Grange. Eight months later, however, he's, by happenstance, finds himself back in the area. And he decides to go look in on Nellie... Uh, who's the only person who would merit looking in on at this point um, to see how things are. So Wait, wait, wait. Is she sick and about to die? No. Uh, she oh. now lives at Wuthering Heights as well because uh, Heathcliff had asked her to go and live there. And she narrates the end of this story in which Kathy and Harriton have now become close friends and are soon to be married. And Kathy has taught Harriton how to read, and he's sort of become a great uh, person now. And so Kathy Did and Harriton. What are, happened? What happened to Linton? Linton died. He he died from illness. He died when from illness right after when I said Linton soon dies. <laughs> I feel like that must have been too subtle for me. <laughs> it's right yeah, after. It, he, right, yeah, so there's some ambiguity in that sentence. They get married. So <laughs> they get married. So okay. So Heath so Heathcliff uh, captures Kathy. Forces her to marry Linton. Uh, Kathy escapes, goes home. Her dad dies. She uh, she then turns around, and Heathcliff says, now you have to live in Wuthering Heights with me and Linton. So she goes back to Wuthering Heights, and then Linton dies. Okay. So that's why when Lockwood okay. finds them at the beginning of the book, uh, we only have Kath- Kath- Kathy, Kathy, Heathcliff, and Harriton. Got it. And there's got another it, servant it. whose name is Joseph, but he just uh, sort of acts uh, curmudgeonly throughout. Yes. Um, so Kathy and Harrison have become close friends, soon to be married, in fact. Shortly before Lockwood's visit, Heathcliff had grown strangely ill, wandered around the moors, uh, blabbering about uh, Catherine, stopped eating, and then lay down in a bed in Catherine's old room and died. And he's buried next to Catherine. Lockwood leaves the moors. Curtain. The end. Okay. Well done, Todd. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's uh, that's back in some of our older time frames for like that's about fifteen minutes. But I think I, I think you may have needed it. <laughs> I uh, yeah, perhaps with more so, time I could have trimmed it down a bit, but um, but I feel like I hit the high points. Yeah, I. Apparently, most of the film adaptations, I've not seen any of them, I don't believe. But uh, when I was looking at some stuff, it said most of the film adaptations just deal with the first generation and ignore all of the hullabaloo with Heathcliff maneuvering the younger generation into various marriages. And I actually really like the second half of this book better than the first. Yeah, listening to it, I was more interested in that. Maybe because myself. I like Kathy better than Catherine. It's not a not a tough bar to clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like, I was listening to this, and I was waiting for the tragic romance of yeah. Heathcliff and Catherine, and I kept saying, "Like, well, no, they don't get to be happy." No, no there's. I would say this if you read this more as a criticism uh, of obsession rather than a delightful romance you're going to get a lot more out of it <laughs> yeah see i was telling i was telling some students before i read this book that i was going to be reading this book and they were all all of these uh these students of mine were saying oh i love withering heights it's the best so romantic and i love it when when she says Whatever stuff souls are made of, mine is made of the same as his. And I thought, oh, that's so beautiful. I can't wait till I get to read that part. And then when I read it, I was like, I want to throw up in my mouth right now. This is horrible. Like, these people are horrible. It's a, it's a dark, dank, <laughs> dusty stuff that their souls are made of. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Which is not yeah, to say it, that I did not enjoy this book because I really, really liked this story. It sounds really compelling and enjoyable, but in the same way, and I've never watched Breaking Bad, but in the same way that Breaking Bad is not about good people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you you have to accept, I think, going in that you're reading uh, British Gothic romanticism and you need to be paying attention more for how the descriptions and the actions are making you feel and uh, and the mood that is being established through the setting and and everything rather than uh you know modernist strict uh you know uh what's what's the word like teacup dramas of matters you're not going to get that <laughs> that was the that that was romanticism right it was yeah. about mood yes absolutely uh, and about how, um, you know, setting and description of the structure reflect, like, the mindset of the characters. And this whole thing takes place in this dark, dank moor and crumbling buildings. And everyone's health is crumbling around them all the time. And, yeah, I mean, that's, it, it is, uh, I think, an iconic example of that kind of uh, literature. Yeah, the way that I think about romanticism is that um, there's sort of this pendulum that swings back and forth through Western culture where... There are, t- there are periods of time, like the Enlightenment or the Renaissance, where people, thinkers generally, thinkers and artists, writers, they tend to think that if we just use our brains, we can figure out this world. Like, it's not that complicated. We'll just use logic and science. This is Thomas Jefferson, right? We're tinkering with clocks and things. We can make sense of the world. Let's just use our brains. We'll all do, you know, be generally good. And, uh, and we'll all move towards utopia. And then the, the other side of the pendulum is something like what we see in the Baroque or in Romanticism, which is where people say, you know what, you are absolutely bananas if you think that you can make any sense of this world. People are dark, uh, and life makes no sense, and, and then we die, and... <laughs> But you can enjoy uh, atmosphere and mood, right? But the, the <laughs> point—the point—it's like it's like the point of the Renaissance and and neoclassicism uh, is to find the answers to questions. And the point of having periods of time like Romanticism is to ask lots of questions and really not care about the answers. I mean, it, it, there are all kinds of really really interesting questions get posed, uh, but there's no there's no expectation that any of them will be answered. Um, in fact. There's the sort of basic underlying understanding that they can be answered, but that we need to keep asking the questions. Right. The the texts are meant to be very evocative, but not offer those conclusions. Yeah. The 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 painting that always makes me think of these kinds of time periods is Caravaggio's um, Thomas and this and the Christ. So it, it's okay. this it, it's this famous painting of. Um, this great like chiaroscuro so there's really dark darks and really bright lights and uh, Thomas is sticking his finger into Christ's side and he has this look on his face of just absolute like he's absolutely perplexed and (laughs) I mean you could I think we sometimes get the impression that Thomas, when he does that, he goes, oh, yeah, I totally get it. Like, resurrection, it makes total sense. When you look at that painting, the look on Thomas's face is, you could do this for a, a million years, uh, stick your finger in Christ's side. You're never going to understand atonement or resurrection or any of this. Uh, let's just be grateful that we have it. And, uh, and so the, there's something about that just feeling of awe and uh, the sublime that, um, that I think Emily Bronte captures really well in this in a really different way. 
Yeah, I love the, I mean, you use the word sublime, and that's one of my favorite concepts for romanticism and gothicism, where it's this uh, mixture of awe and delight and terror that can happen simultaneously. And I think you get those in, like you said, the creepy room with all the writing that's been scribbled in the margins of the pages. And then he has the dream of the ghost and Heathless, Heathcliff comes in and thinks the ghost is really there outside the window. Yeah. And he he kicks him out. He's like, you go sleep in my room. I'm <laughs> staring at this window all night long because <laughs> I'm going to talk to the ghost of Catherine. Yeah. Uh, like that, that sequence for me really um, encapsulated the sublime. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's just something wild about... When I was reading the, I was reading the introduction, and they were talking about how wild this story is, and and how wild the narrative is, and um, how she captures it in the language and her descriptions of the countryside, and and um, and I thought, well, we'll see about that. And it really is true. <laughs> really feels wild, and sort of un, like really untamed. And you certainly get the reflection of that in these characters, like you said. Like, there's no social graces uh, right. <laughs> in the characters that we have living there. You know, they are reflective of of that setting in the way that the best romantic literature does. Right, and we laugh through that. We laugh through that long um, plot summary at how kind of convoluted it is, and all these name, all these people that have the same name. Um, but there's something even kind of wild about the way that the that the narrative unfolds. It's it's not. It's not clean. It's not really concise, uh, but it's but it's certainly beautiful. And there's so many holes that like Heathcliff comes back and he's a wealthy gentleman now, right? <laughs> it's just like, uh, it's like wait, maybe what? he's been a soldier, uh, maybe not, or, or you almost maybe he gambled his way up to enough wealth that he right. can put on airs in six months. Yeah, well, because when he gets there, he he starts a gambling habit yeah. amongst other people and takes advantage of them. Yeah, it's. So, uh, so we're here to talk about a great character and a great story. You said you wanted to talk about Heathcliff. So, what is it about Heath- Heathcliff? Because he's not my favorite character in the story. Oh, he's he's not my favorite character. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know how he could just... be anybody's favorite character, but I, I suppose uh, you know. Yes, in a, in a future uh, podcast, we're going to be reading The Air Affair, and I don't think it's in that one. I think it's in a later book in the series where you see a counseling session of all the characters from <laughs> Wuthering Heights, and they're, and they're asked to identify what their issues are, and every single person says, I hate Heathcliff, except for Catherine, who says, I love Heathcliff. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what their issues are. <laughs> that they're doing. But at the same time, that there's so much dislike, and it's clear that he is a bad influence on everyone. He must have some, uh, I don't know personality or something because he keeps ascending within right. these situations and to me that's interesting that you can dislike him so much as a reader and have all the characters dislike him so much yet his plot is the one that kind of comes through in the end <laughs> and his influence is the one that is most substantial in the text yeah and he gets i mean he sets his sights on isabella I mean, how many men wish that they could say, you know what, I'm going to marry her, and then one week later, they're eloping, you know? <laughs> right, and, and he's done it through this performance. Like, he's put on this mask yeah. of what he... He figured out what Isabella wanted, and he performed that role until it no longer suited him. Yeah, <laughs> and know? I don't know for how long I... I I had I, I felt like I had the wool kind of pulled over my own eyes as I was reading it, thinking, he's going to change, or... Like Catherine's gonna gonna change him, and he just doesn't. He just is like from beginning to end, except for at the very beginning when when he and and Catherine are kind of running around in the in the hills. I don't know. It, 
there's a lot to feel really sad about the way in the way that he's treated. Um, once uh, the first, I can't even remember anybody's name, the guy that uh, Catherine's dad when he dies, um, Earnhardt, Earn, what's his name, Earnshaw. When Earnshaw dies, uh, Heathcliff's life gets pretty miserable, and the way that Henley treats him is is pretty uh, unforgivable. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that's interesting is that as unlikable as he is, you can see where he learned the behavior that he exhibits later right. on. And he just masters that behavior in a way that goes beyond what anyone before him did, but allowed him to mostly achieve his goals. Like, he doesn't end up with Catherine. That's his his one true goal would be to end up with Catherine. Though I guess he's buried with her. So. He's buried with her, and he dies in ecstasy. Yes, and when you combine that with the earlier scene where he's waiting for her ghost to come, then you think maybe they, maybe maybe it worked out. Maybe for her him. spirit came. Yeah, her spirit came and he died. Because when there's a description of uh, Nelly finding the body, right, where yes. she looks in and she she thinks he's alive at first because his face is so animated uh, and he's smiling, but his clothes are soaking wet. So he'd been out walking in the middle of the night during a storm uh-huh. on the moors because there's nothing but storms on the moors uh, in the. In the <laughs> this novel uh but then she realizes that the smile and the way his eyes are is he's in rictus like he's, he's, he's dead. dead and you know it says she tries to close and his eyes can't. and make him look like he's not smiling anymore but she can't yeah and nobody and nobody will look at him except for harriton right yeah doesn't it say that at the end that harriton was like legitimately sad that Heathcliff was dead uh, yeah i think that's the only real morning that we see or reference any morning. Yeah. Everybody else is probably feeling Yeah, like it's a lot of relief. I think that his death is really interesting. This as he goes through when he falls ill, he actually he, his spirits raise, which is really interesting, right? I mean he or rise, and he starts spending more time rise. wandering out on the moors and he's calling uh Catherine's he's name call, the whole but time. But he's happy. Yeah. He's really happy and and he dies in ecstasy. I mean he dies a happy man. And, so weird. So, based on your synopsis, I don't know how to think of Heathcliff behaving. Um, like, I can't, I can't picture very well a scene where he's a major feature. It just sort of like based on the, the description of the synopsis, it seems like he's, a, for, he's a force of nature, and you see the results exactly, of him having been. That's there. exactly the word that I was just going to say. He's a force of nature, so he's physically abusive. Um, he's verbally abusive. Like, but do you see those actions? Yeah, or do you, you see do. the evidence. No, you some, do. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you do. You do. Uh, often you do also see the after effects, like people talking about the way Heathcliff treated them, right. or you know how they're feeling after they've had an interaction with Heathcliff. But, but you do see some physical abuse. Yeah, you see, and you definitely hear some verbal abuse. Yeah, he's verbally abusive. He's physically abusive. Uh, but like, like uh, sort when, of on and off screen, um, but he's also I, charismatic, and in in seconds he can win over anybody that he wants when he wants when he to. wants that's, to. I mean, that's often the case with the worst sort of people. The worst abusive people is that they are so charismatic, they're so charming, and people keep going back to them. You don't believe people don't believe the victims. And when, like, um, one thing that sticks out to me about, like, just seeing the effect is when Kathy is wooing or, or is being wooed by Heathcliff's son Linton. at this point, uh-huh. Linton, and they meet out on the moors and Linton, they'd been exchanging letters and Linton had been like talking about how he's feeling better. Cause he's always been this sickly whiny child. Um, 
and they meet and visibly they can see that he's weaker than they had ever seen him before, but he won't say anything to complain. And you just sense this fear of Heathcliff yeah. finding out if he had said anything to them about him being weak. Cause Heathcliff's desperate for them to get married before Linton dies. So he doesn't want Kathy to think Linton is ailing. Uh, and Linton just like, he says, I need to sleep. And he collapses to the ground and falls asleep. But he's like, please don't tell my father that, <laughs> that I fell asleep. Please tell him that we had a pleasant conversation this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you, have the presence of Heathcliff in the scene and you can palpably sense Linton's fear. And it's pretty obvious that, um, Heathcliff has been telling Linton what to write in all the letters and has been physically abusing or threatening physical abuse to him. If he doesn't do exactly what Heathcliff is doing. So Heathcliff's kind of trying to train Linton into the kind of masquerade that Heathcliff seems to be able to do naturally. Linton fails at it utterly. Uh (laughs) But was it, was it really natural? Is that his natural skill? Heathcliff? to to be charming and and to um be able to to put on that that face i mean did he have that as a child like they the story begins with him being very young well there's so few interactions and the only one he wants to please is Catherine, and he does um and he, he makes no efforts to please anyone else so it's hard to say you know um as as a child really his only interest is in having fun running around with Catherine on the moors here's a quote here's a quote from uh from the book about Heathcliff. Heathcliff seized and thrust Isabella from the room and returned muttering, I have no pity, I have no pity. The more the worms writhe, the more I yearn to crush out their entrails. It is a moral teething, and I grind with greater energy in proportion to the increase of pain. So if you ever hear anyone muttering that, (laughs) you may have some suspicions about their true character. The reason why that people... I think some people really like these students that I was talking about who said, Oh, I just love it. They, she really Heathcliff and Catherine both have some really fantastic lines. I mean, the kind of things that you wish you would could say to somebody that you love or that somebody that loves you would say to you. Um, yes, absolutely. I cannot look down to this floor, but her features are shaped on the flags in every cloud in every tree filling the air at night and caught by glimpses in every object by day. My own features mock me with a resemblance. The entire world is a dreadful collection of memoranda that she did exist and that I have lost her. Uh, or when she says, Nellie, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So don't talk of separation again. It's impracticable. And there's, I don't have in front of me, but the quote when she talks about the difference between her feelings for Edward and Heathcliff, she says, like, Heathcliff, my love for Heathcliff is, like, the stone foundation of my life. Yeah. Like, it will, it will, you know, it it will always be there. Even if I marry Edward, Heathcliff is still going to be the foundation of my soul. And she actually ends up marrying, I mean, she has in her mind this idea that if she marries, uh, Edgar, that that will somehow. Oh, I said Edward. I meant Edgar. Sorry. Amen. Unbelievable that you would that you would confuse any names in this story. So this is the quote. The quote that my student loves is, um, "He's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same." Yeah, she, I mean, she she ends up marrying Edgar because she thinks that in the end that will help Heathcliff. I mean, she has this weird kind of twisted logic in which that's the best case for her and Heathcliff is for her to marry Edgar. Um, it's very strange. I think she's very strange. She's not my favorite character in this novel. Uh, Who is your favorite character? I really like Nellie, and I actually really like Kathy. Um, yeah. I, I do have to say, uh, since so much of this novel is Nellie telling the story to our initial first-person narrator, right. 
her memory is fantastic. Or she's a fantastic storyteller, and, and she also is... Just fills in the details well, she's however not, she wants. And she's certainly not a, a completely reliable narrator. She's totally tangled up in the events, and you wonder how much of this... I mean, it is a novel, so it's all made up, but... <laughs> but but it, you get that ambiguity. Right. Um, you wonder how much of because this... Because of that framing device, you are wondering, how does Nellie know all of this, these conversations? Like, how right. much is she just filling in, and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. But I really liked her as a character, and the the lady that did her voice on the recording that I listened to was fantastic. It was really, really good. So, uh, so, so, why is Nellie your favorite character then? Um, I think she's a great storyteller. She's loyal to the people um, around her. I feel like she she's trying to make her world better. She's stuck in this place that's pretty awful, and and really turns everybody there sour. And she somehow maintains her humanity and her dignity. Heathcliff uh, is is rude to her, but also seems to respect her. And she takes care of she takes care of um, Harrison when he's a baby. Uh, she takes care of Kathy uh, and Catherine. She she seems seems like she has. I mean, she she is the narrator of the story, but she seems to have some kind of moral compass and. Uh, spine, and and also when she does things, you can always tell she's she's not manipulating people the way almost everyone right. else does. She's literally trying to make the people who she's interacting with happier. And to do what's right, even when she does, even when she takes like a, when she lets Heathcliff secretly go and see Catherine, uh, she knows that it's wrong, uh, but she feels like she's doing the best thing that she can do at the time, and she feels remorse for it later. So I I don't know. I, I felt like she was fleshed out maybe more than any of the other characters. Uh, I, I really liked her. And Kathy, I, I like Kathy. Uh, I like her arc, the way that she grows and progresses and is able in the end to make amends with Harriton and, and, and also kind of turn what was a pretty horrible early life into what could potentially be you know a nice one. Yeah, and that relationship with Harriton is one of the ones that changes... I'd say the most. Um, again, it's uh, her rude comments to him seem often out of more obliviousness right. than malice. Um, the malice that we see from Heathcliff. Right. And um, once Nell- Nellie's the one, that Nell- I think this is one of those moments where Nellie, like she's mean to Kathy, but it's to teach her. Right. She says, you're not understanding what, how your words are affecting him. So let me tell you. And Kathy's like, you, no one talks to me that way. And Nellie says, no, you need to understand um, how you're affecting him and where he's at in his life and the level of education that he's been able to have because of his circumstances. It's not that he's stupid. It's that no one has ever tried to teach him or treated him in a way that would let him think that he could learn. So let me run this one by you. Um, I was reading something today and the, the thought was proposed uh, that maybe Isabella is the strongest uh, character in this novel. Isabella Heathcliff's wife, Linton's mom. Because she leaves the bad situation. Because she she's able to um, uh, to get herself out of an abusive relationship, and hmm. uh, and nobody else does really. I mean, Nellie, even Nellie doesn't. She she can't leave. Anyway, yeah, I had not I had not thought of it that way, but yeah. she seems so weak in the in the book. She seems such a weak character, but when you think about it that way, you think, huh? I mean, it made me it made me uh, re. Uh, reevaluate my 
uh, thoughts regarding Isabella. Yeah, and um, my first piece of advice to almost any of these characters would be move, and she does. <laughs> She's the one that's, like, for your own uh, physical health, because this place seems to really have a bad impact yeah. on every individual that lives there, and also for your mental and social health. Why don't you move to a location where maybe you can have better peers? And she does. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know, it was just a, an interesting thought. Okay. Well, I uh, before we started recording, I put on Facebook that we were going to be discussing this, and I got a few comments. Uh, I asked if anyone had any thoughts on you should, this. You should throw that out through the Twitter. Oh, yes, through the, our the protagonist, protagonist pod. podcast. Yes. Twitter feed. So let me... Uh, the, the first two comments are from friends of ours in high school, Todd. Okay. Uh, Kent and Merlin. Oh, right. I think I saw these comments, but... Continue. And uh, they, Kent said that uh, in... Uh, Mr. Carpenter's AP U.S. government class. One of the best classes reading, I ever took. He was reading Wuthering Heights rather than paying attention, I assume. <laughs> and Mr. Carpenter just said, are those heights still Wuthering? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the story that Merlin apparently was coming in to share as well because he was in that classroom yes. when that happened. Uh, and then uh, listener Heidi says, I've got to be honest, Wuthering Heights drove me bonkers. <laughs> Catherine was so incredibly annoying. Give me your sister's Jane Eyre any day. But as silly as this sounds, one of my favorite literature quotes of all time is from Wuthering Heights, and she found the quote, and it is, good words, I replied, but deeds must prove it also. Remember, you don't forget resolutions formed in the hour of fear. Huh. So that is one of her favorite quotes. And then listener Cammy said, all I can recall is how annoyed with the main character's selfishness and pride I was when I read, <laughs> sl- read it slash watched it. So much wasted time in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to say, some of these uh, passages, I did wonder how they spend their days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like the guy who, uh, who's our first narrator? Mr. Lockwood. Lockwood. Like he's, he's coming out there t- just to be there. To take in the <laughs> Moorish airs. Yes. Which, again, not good for your health. <laughs> wants to catch a cold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wants to catch consumption. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, and then he's like, the only entertainment he gets is Nelly telling him the story. And so I'm kind of like, what does he do the rest of the day? It's a great story. I mean, you can yeah. see why he went back to try to find Nelly when he found himself in the area. He thought, I'm so bored out of my mind. I got to go find Nelly and see if she can tell me another story. <laughs> All right. Well, before we wrap up, I have one special treat. A, uh, a listener, Ben commented on our protagonist podcast facebook page that he enjoys the podcast but it does not have as many pun runs as he's used to in his podcast and he's he been listening to uh he introduced me to a podcast called the bugle and one of the hosts of the bugle uh, john oliver who you may have heard of he does uh news commentary humor uh he's a co-host and his other co-host is named andy zaltz andy zaltzman will sometimes out of the blue just go on a pun run and john just moans in the background because he thinks punning is the lowest form of humor <laughs> and andy zaltzman won't stop and so inspired by listener ben i have composed a short story uh and just as a reminder we've been talking about the brontes who include the sisters charlotte Anne, and emily who wrote the books The Professor Jane Eyre, Shirley Villette, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, Agnes Grey, Wuthering Heights. Uh, and there are such characters as Rochester and Jane Eyre and Heathcliff and uh, Catherine. Oh just just reminder before I read this short story called The Cat Catchers. <clears throat> there were three cat catchers in the city of Angria. Their names were Billy, Jay, and Phil. They were called out together a herd of cats from a shed near an empty field. When they got their cats were spread out in the field as far as the eye could see. Bailey said, sure are a lot of them. Charlotte, sure are a lot of them. Uh, Jay asked, 
Do you think we can catch them all? Phil answered confidently. You bet. I'm a lean cat catcher today, Emily. I'm a lean. I'm a lean cat catcher today, Emily. Are you highlighting? Please let me read. But what if they hide? Asked Jay. Billy smirked. Whether the things hide, <laughs> whether hides, whether the things hide or not, won't make any difference. Let's tag them and take them in. They began grabbing cats and putting them into a large cage in the back of their truck. Billy had one that was flailing its paw around, and Phil warned him, don't let that, don't let it scratch like that. It'll have a Rochester hair. Rochester. Rochester hair. (laughs) That's good advice, Billy agreed. Jay came up and said, please tag this gray cat. Agnes Gray, tag this gray. Tag this gray cat. And the one with the black body and brown tail. And Bronte. And brown tail. And brown tail. Okay, that was forced. (laughs) They're not all winners. They're not all winners. Uh, Surely, and there was a novel called Shirley, so surely you can do it yourself. Billy said, and then walked away. But while trying to put a tag on the gray cat, Jay fell into the cage of angry cats in the back of the truck. Phil and Billy came to back to the truck with a cat apiece and heard a voice from under the fur in the cage. Uh, hey, is Jay in there? Jay there, uh, Billy asked. Phil tried to say. He slipped into the cats there, but his cat allergies were acting up. Bad job, bad job choice if you have cat allergies. And <laughs> his suddenly stuffing voice, it sounded like he said, he lives in Catherine there. Keith Cliff and Catherine. Uh... Will it hurt him? Villette. Will it hurt him? Billy asked. Nah, Phil said, and he reached in and pulled Jay out by the scruff of his neck. Jay looked startled and said, I must profess my dislike for this job. Phil said, I don't care if you profess or yell or cry. Professor, the professor. I don't care if you profess or yell or cry. We got to finish the job. Billy took pity on Jay and said, look, there are only ten cats left. Let's get the ten, and while Phil hauls them away, we can rest easy. The tenant of Wild, wild Phil hauls. Oh my gosh. Let's get the ten while Phil hauls. <laughs> Uh, hauls them away. We can rest easy. And that's what happened with the job well done. They relaxed with a nice cold drink of ice water. The end. Wow. That's amazing. So I got in every, uh, every novel title and all the sisters in there. Way to go. I'm very proud of you. I hope that, uh, that you are proud of yourself. (laughs) I think that's that's the best thing you can hope with something like that is that you're proud of yourself. I would say that was a half hour well spent. (laughs) It would have been Once like I a, the, three the story. weeks well spent for me. <laughs> Can you uh, publish the text of that on the website? Yeah, I, I think this is going to go pretty far and wide. <laughs> There'll be a lot of interest. In case it goes viral. <laughs> There'll be a lot of interest in this, in this short story. I mean, I mean, Bronte-based puns are one of the keys to viral yeah, yeah, web, I've, internet. Uh, right. I can't tell you how many memes I've seen that are based <laughs> on Villette <laughs> or Agnes Grey. Um... Yeah, I hope that we can still continue to do the podcast when you become a worldwide uh, celebrity for your uh, short story puns. I hope that you'll remember your lowly, your lowly friend. Hey, here, here's a deal, listeners. Um, right now, we are at nine reviews. If we reach double digits, I'll do another pun run. <laughs> or, or if we reach double digits and you say in your review you don't want any more pun runs, I won't. Or, so. <laughs> or if you give us some money on Patreon. Yes, there are many ways you could. You I'd can bid. buy a pun run or a lack thereof. You could buy. You could outbid <laughs> someone else who was bid for a pun run. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that wraps up this episode. So thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review. Again, if we reach double digits, a pun run could be coming in a future episode or it may never be it coming helps. again. 
Yes, it helps our uh, listenership and also our feelings of self-worth. Links to the things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all our shows, and you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss, or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd Day Mac, and at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. If you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or just support us with any financial donation, you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in another great story. So long. So long. Portion to the increase of pain. These magnificent creatures take flight. <laughs> and that is the re- something in the recesses of my brain.